Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Zubisati. Whoa, Andrea, what happened with your voice? Is that okay? I've been practicing for a month. <laughs> it's not easy. No, and it's not easy. It's not easy to talk about the film we're going to talk about, Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. I feel that... The closest I can get to this film as a comparison is Ghostbusters, yeah. that I actually don't remember the first time I saw it. It's just so intrinsically a part of who I am. Yeah. It's part of my humor. It's a part of my aesthetic. It's a part of the things I like. So it was a weird thing going back to this film as an original text and trying to take it apart because it's one of those films that if I met someone and they were like, I don't like Beetlejuice, I would have issues relating to them. I have bit. never met somebody. Right. They don't exist, right? I don't think so. I think maybe like Bigfoot doesn't like it. <laughs> Fuck him. And we realized that it's a bit of an offbeat choice for the faculty of horror. We did Ghostbusters because it kind of straddles in horror, but also there was a wider discussion at stake as to how people were reacting to the remake and stuff. So we did a mini episode about that. But when it comes to Beetlejuice, it's listed as a comedy fantasy, but there are definitely horror elements at play. And when we get into the production history of this film, this film was almost a horror film. And this is perhaps the only time in the world that I'm glad it didn't wind up a straight up horror film. It's really in a league all its own, but I love it dearly and I'm excited to get into it today. From the director of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Adam and Barbara are ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. Learn to throw your voice for your friend. Fun party. Not bad. This is amazing. Want a cigarette? Oh, no, thank you. Oh, yeah, here I come, baby. He's guaranteed to put some life... Attention, King Workshoppers! ...in your afterlife. Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. Adam and Barbara Maitland are a married couple living in a sprawling house in New England who decide to have a stay-at-home vacation and redecorate their house. On their way home one day, they drive off a bridge to avoid hitting a dog. Upon returning home, the couple discovers that they didn't survive the crash. They no longer have reflections in the mirror, and a strange book has appeared, the handbook for the recently deceased. They take the news well enough and spend time poring over the book before the Dietzes roll in, a family from New York comprised of young goth girl Lydia, her real estate developer dad, Charles, and her stepmom, Delia. Charles is on leave from work after suffering a nervous breakdown, so he's eager to adopt quiet country living. Delia, on the other hand, is hell-bent on renovating the house as per her interior designer friend, Otho. 
The Maitlands are horrified by the Dietzes and are just about to enlist the services of a creepy bio-exorcist called Beetlejuice before they learn how to consult their caseworker, Juno, in the netherworld. Juno cautions them against releasing Beetlejuice and tells them that they'll have to get rid of the Dietzes themselves. As the Maitlands attempt to scare the Dietzes away, they befriend Lydia, who tries to convince her dad and stepmom that the house is haunted. When Charles and Delia host a dinner party, the Maitlands possess their bodies for a Calypso dance number, but instead of being scared, they're delighted and Charles starts hatching a plan to turn the sleepy town into a supernatural tourist attraction. When the Maitlands fail to entertain Charles's New York boss, Otho leads an exorcism that causes the ghosts to wither and crumble. Desperate to help her friends, Lydia agrees to release Beetlejuice permanently by marrying him if he'll help the Maitlands. He does, sort of, but the Maitlands interrupt the wedding and Beetlejuice gets eaten by a sandworm. The Maitlands agree to share the house with the Dietzes and the two families merge to form an unconventional but pretty nuclear household. Nice. Well, let me tell you, that was not easy. No. I watched the film and loved it, and I was so struck by how brilliant the pacing was, how there wasn't a second wasted. It's all fun. It's all good. It's always funny and visually stunning. And then when I sat down to write this synopsis, I was like, wow, this movie is bananas. And I think that kind of goes a bit hand in hand with the main character. Or he's not even the main character. He's the title character. Yeah, Beetlejuice is only actually in the film for, what is it, 18 minutes? 18 minutes, yeah. That's it. But Michael Keaton, who is still, you know, relatively unknown at that time, he'd had a few film roles before this, he just inhabits this part, and it's so singular, and it's so eccentric, and it's never been matched, and it feels so natural. Mm -hmm. And I'm really not one for, like, the cult of the actor. I'm not like, oh, fuck, Daniel Day-Lewis is more Abraham Lincoln than Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Like, I'm I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. But the idea of anyone else playing Beetlejuice or even attempting it just feels wrong. Even Michael Keaton attempting it again feels a little bit wrong to me. I'm not going to lie. I, I, later on, I'm sure we're going to talk about the sequel that's been happening for the last 20 some odd years or something. But I watched a video that you sent me prior to recording this, which is Michael Keaton introducing a screening of the film many years later. And yeah, just like you said, he was relatively unknown at the time. And so was Tim Burton, so to speak. He was very early on in his career. He had made a series of shorts that were frankly excellent. Have you seen them? I love Vincent. Vincent is one of my favorite short films. And To look back on such a visionary director who's got such a singular, unique, identifiable style, he had that right from the very start. And I really get the impression that Beetlejuice just came straight from his brain. And that's an impression that I get from Michael Keaton as well, who discusses how he took on the role and the extent to which it was improvised, the extent to which he was able to make the character his own. And when I started making notes for this episode, I decided I was going to start with the aesthetic of Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. So I just started writing down words. And the words I have are gothic, punk, kitsch, steampunk, surrealism, pop, and natural versus unnatural. And like, I feel like that does talk to a bit of his style, but it doesn't encapsulate all of it. Yeah. I might have said, well, definitely creepy and cute. And creepy and cute come together 
in a really interesting way within the horror world, you know, you've got stuff like living dead dolls and everything kind of grew out of Tim Burton's perspective that things can be spooky, but still very upbeat, still very heartwarming and still very uplifting. Yeah. So I was like thinking of these notions of natural and unnatural in Tim Burton films. And they actually speak to some of my favorite Tim Burton films. And those would be his short film, Vincent, which we just talked about. This film, Beetlejuice, a real big soft spot for Edward Scissorhands. And I think his most accomplished work, maybe, is Ed Wood from 1994. Oh, really? Which is a really brilliant film. And yeah, full of amazing performances. And I like when his aesthetic is juxtaposed against a kind of bright happiness Mm -hmm. against his kind of dark gothic leanings. Mm -hmm. And they kind of make each other stand out more. And he's often about intermeshing characters from one world into the other. And they kind of move back and forth. And so as an audience, you're kind of, you know, initially your, your initial thought is like, oh, the dark, creepy things are unnatural. And then the kitschy pop world then becomes even more unnatural to you Mm -hmm. as the film progresses. So your views of what is unnatural and natural really begins to evolve the more you watch his films, I think, especially as a kid. Totally. And he really does like to clash opposites, whether it's creepy and cute, natural or unnatural, past and present. Also looking through his filmography, I also have a huge soft spot for his first feature film, which is Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I don't know if I've talked about it before on the podcast, but I used to watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure when I got home from school every single fucking day with my friend. We used to watch it in her living room, and there are two scary parts in that film, and we used to have hiding places in her living room, and of course those parts are Large Marge. Yeah. And the dream sequence with the skeleton autopsy of the Mm -hmm, bike. mm -hmm. So I feel like even with Pee-wee, I feel like he's got kind of a fascination with child and adult hybrids as well. I feel like he is really interested in pitting innocence against reality. And that's, again, something that we see in Beetlejuice, where we've got Lydia, who really straddles two worlds. And we are going to talk about her in a little bit. But it is worth noting that Tim Burton started his career as an animator at Disney. And so he's constantly employed animation throughout his filmography. I mean, Vincent is stop motion. Uh, one of his other classics, A Nightmare Before Christmas, is, of course, all stop motion. Corpse Bride, things like that. They kind of go on and on and permeate what his aesthetic is. And uh, there is a really great article that I found in Aesthetic Magazine, an aptly named magazine. There's an Aesthetic Magazine? Yep. And uh, it, is, it is actually a really great article, and we'll link it in the show notes. It's called The Imagination of Tim Burton. And this writer, Neem Colgan, breaks down Andrew Saris's notes on an auteur. So as we've, I think, discussed on this podcast before, the auteur theory is that the director is kind of the be-all and end-all of a film. Mm-hmm. The vision comes from within the director mm-hmm. and then goes out into the world. So this piece by Andrew Saris, which was written in 1962, talks about the three circles uh, – which encompass the auteur. And the outer circle is comprised of technique. The middle circle is personal style. And the inner circle is interior meaning. And you can kind of interpret those in a few different ways. But this writer says in regards to Burton that the focus on animation and the focus on a kind of fairy tale structure to his films means that Tim Burton is not just the author of his films, but also the illustrator. Mm -hmm. The visual sense is such a big part 
of these films. And for me, I think Tim Burton works best when he's placed under some constraints. Mm. I think as he's gotten more power and he's been able to kind of go off and do bigger and bigger projects, uh, whether it's Planet of the Apes or Alice in Wonderland or Sweeney Todd, for me, those films really go off the rails because mm. they're not structured. Right. And I feel that in my opinion, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Vincent, they're all working within a very sacrosanct structure. Mm-hmm. So you can play within those, absolutely. But it's like what he did with Michael Keaton. He, you know, apparently sat down with Michael Keaton, had a meeting, and said a few things about Beetlejuice. There was the script, and there were some things that we kept, but mostly I just riffed. Then Michael Keaton had that box to play in and then played. Mm. And I, I often feel that a way about a lot of directors is their early work tends to be the best because they are under constraint. Mm. When they kind of have too much room uh, or too much money or too much control, things can get out of hand pretty quickly, not unlike with one Mr. Beetlejuice. Yeah. No, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, I marvel at how inventive Beetlejuice is. And I think a lot of it has to do with how well the uniqueness of Pee-wee's Big Adventure went. I think they did let him flex quite a bit insofar as he was constrained, as you said. But one of the constraints he faced with Beetlejuice was that he was given a script that he was like, this sounds oddball and bonkers and bananas, and I'd like to take it on. And that script underwent a lot of changes big changes, significant changes that actually serve to inform some of the film's, I don't even want to call them shortcomings. There are plot holes, guys. There are things that don't make sense. I have questions. What? Are you kidding? No. I had a drunken conversation with somebody last year. I have a friend who every single year has a Santa party where every single person has to wear a Santa suit and it's the most bizarre party you've ever been to. Everybody's Santa. And so I remember arguing with another Santa about the logic of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice and we were trying to really just solidify the mythology. Is that saying it three times releases him, home, home, home takes you home, but they kind of left him released to fuck with the Dietzes But then he had to come back out to marry Lydia because she had to release him again. Like, do you have that straight? Yeah. No, you don't. You're rolling with it because you want to. And I I get it. Like, I I do too. But the fact of the matter is, when I'm doing the synopsis, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Even the netherworld is kind of wrought with some contradiction. It doesn't totally make sense. But what it does get right is it's so inventive and engaging and visually perfect that you just don't give a shit. Well, and let's talk about the Maitlands and the afterlife and all of that stuff. Because when you get down to it, Beetlejuice is essentially a ghost story. Mm-hmm. The Maitlands are ghosts and they are haunting. But because of the aesthetics and the tricks they can do and the possession, it kind of floats between a few different horror tropes. You know, there's the possession trope. There's, you know, obviously hauntings. And then there's uh, banisters that turn into snakes. We come for your daughter, Chuck. And, you know, ghosts exist in a lot of films and a lot of horror films. And I don't know if we've ever really talked about them in depth on this podcast. There's a lot of great films that speak to those things, everything from the changeling to the woman in black. Mm -hmm. And there's some of my 
scariest films. Like, they just creep me out. Ghost stories really creep me out. Usually, when we talk about ghosts in a cinematic context, they represent the sins of the past or a forgotten deed or a crime that was covered up. So it's the sins of the past being revisited on the present or the 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 people who are alive, forcing them to reconcile what has happened and solve a misdeed. Now, What's interesting is the, again, as we're talking about the aesthetic and the aesthetic of the Maitlands is this very kind of quaint Americana, New England, small town, Connecticut. I'm just saying words that like involve an LL Bean catalog, but that's, that's what they are. And they're very square. Mm -hmm. They're a dorky couple who want to stay home on a staycation and maybe try for a kid or just hang out in this big house Mm -hmm. all by themselves. They're kind of stuck in time almost. Like you get a really fifties feel from them between their wardrobe, their hobbies, the music that they listen to. And I mean, their hobby, you know, Adam's big hobby is creating a model of the town in their own attic. That's right. And it's, it's such a great filmic metaphor for mm-hmm. their own stuckness. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, they're not unhappy about it. No. I like that the film doesn't judge that. They're not saying it's wrong. It's just a different way of life. No, if anything, I think it, it romanticizes it a bit. Yeah. I thought it looked pretty appealing. I was like, I want to have a staycation and <laughs> put flowery wallpaper in my den. You'd find some fucked up flower you wallpaper. You bet your ass I would. So when they die, it's interesting that they, and of course it makes sense, again, if we're going to talk about film as themes and, and tropes and things put it against each other because you can't have a story without conflict, not really. So the people who move in are these kind of New York yuppies. They are over the top. They are a nightmare to be around, essentially. They can't even stand each other. Mm-hmm. So they are willing to wipe out everything that has come before them. Mm-hmm. They don't care for it. They hate it. It is not their taste. So they are determined to wipe it out. That's when the conflict comes from. It's not that they're terrible people. It's that, you know, they're loud, they're obnoxious, they hate their design aesthetic. They hate the Maitland's design aesthetic. And that's where the whole film starts from. You basically have a shitty neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, Delia does, definitely. Delia comes in and she's like, we need to change everything. And then you've got Charles, who's like, uh, no, how about I just keep this one room because I need to fucking relax. Why don't you just leave this room alone, okay? So I feel like that conflict exists within their family, too, and even within each of them as individuals. You've got Charles, who had a nervous breakdown. He needs to relax, but what does he do as soon as he gets to that town? His real estate brain starts going, and he looks at the buildings and just sees parking lots and just sees business opportunities. And he's not – he can't shut his brain off. He can't shut that part of his life off in so much as he'd like to. Delia is Delia, and let me just say, Catherine O'Hara is amazing. They're all amazing in this role. I mean, say what you will about Mr. McPedophile. Yeah. But he sure was great. Winona Ryder, her best performance in her entire life. After Little Women. No. And yeah, they're kind of repulsive, but they're also really endearing. The majority of this film, you've got this bad neighbor, bad roommate scenario going Mm. on. And that's what drives the conflict of this film, as I was saying. And it's not until the end, as the Dietzes kind of really barrel through with their idea of this kind of supernatural city town-wide theme park, that 
they are forced to interact truly. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting. And I, I kind of noticed on this rewatch, the importance of the move of the model of the town from the attic, like they have to go and get it. And then it's kind of when that thing is broken down, because it ends up Beetlejuice again, he's been living in this thing, because it logically makes sense for the film. And when he is released, he kind of breaks through that thing, mm-hmm. and is able to tear down that divide Mm -hmm. and kind of show them that people are ridiculous. And it's like when you make a new friend. Sometimes you make a new friend because you both hate the same things. And in this case, the Maitlands and the Dietzes both hate Beetlejuice. Yeah. And also the fact that Beetlejuice wants to marry Lydia to get out of the netherworld, which is kind of a hilarious little analog to immigration, I guess. (laughs) He's got to get his living green card or something like that. But The families essentially come together when it comes to protecting Lydia. Lydia's in trouble, so we have to work together to get rid of Beetlejuice, which is, I think, what injects this story with that nice, heartwarming, happy ending. We get the sense that the Maitlands don't have kids. Maybe they've been trying. Maybe they're still trying. But there's definite glimpses that they're not happy about that, and they're happy to kind of adopt Lydia. And if that means putting up with the Dietzes, they're happy to. And I think that's an interesting point about Lydia and the way I was reading Lydia this time around was that, and I relate to this very much, she was desperate to grow up. Mm. Like she wanted her freedom. She wanted to be out of that house. She was just putting up with shit for as long as she had to. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a sense of that when she talks about wanting to be dead too. Mm-hmm. Uh, or she even want, just wants to move to a different family. She just wants out. And so she's, you know, making these kind of big life decisions. And I read that as that transition towards adulthood, like the rebelling. She's already rebelled by being a goth and kind of shirking off any kind of aesthetic her father or stepmother have. And what happens is she has to agree to marry someone just to save her friends. And it's in that moment that she kind of realizes the weight of being an adult, of Mm. making something like that choice of marrying yourself to a demon. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Burton posits her as a real outsider, you know, like the Maitlands represent total wholesome 1950s Americana. The Dietzes represent modern, urban, consumerism, art, bullshit. And then you've got Lydia, who is kind of steeped in both worlds, where she's desperate for a sense of authenticity that she can't find. She feels very isolated. I think it's really interesting that she's interested in photography, which is, again, kind of this voyeur position where you're looking at the world through a lens and not really feeling like part of it. Mm-hmm. I also think photography direction, drawing, it's its a way of controlling your viewpoint. Mm-hmm. It's a way of augmenting it. So it's not just, it, it's like, you know, when you talk about film and film studies, you're not talking about necessarily what's in the frame. You have to kind of deal with the stuff that's outside of the frame too mm-hmm. and the way those impact. And, and you get that a lot in horror films. You know, it's not the dark corner in the room with all this weird noise. It's what's about to jump out from the other side. Now, getting back to the notion of the afterlife, which is really central to this film, I think a lot of great ghost stories kind of establish rules to the afterlife. If you're not going with the conventional, this is heaven and this is hell, then you kind of play with the mythology, but you have to establish ground rules, so to speak. 
I really love dogma. Mm-hmm. I really love how it kind of tweaks the mythology, but it adheres to some rules and you're able to stick with it. Uh, the Frighteners is another great example of that where there are ghosts, but their nature is revealed throughout the film. So you understand how to control them, where they came from, why they're here, why they're not there. Beetlejuice doesn't really ascribe to those rules. It's kind of a little bit all over the place. But what I love about Beetlejuice's afterlife is it's so wonderfully secular. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. There is bizarre surrealness. There are rules that don't make sense, but oh well, what are you going to do? There's an ambiguity that you're happy to embrace. There is, I think, an interesting sense in this film that we talk a lot about, in some societies at least, and um, for some people, death is a release. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've been ill, if you've been dealing with something, sometimes death is that out. It's the end of pain. It is the end of suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that Beetlejuice, the film, posits that after death just comes even more control. There is a book full of rules that doesn't really make a shit ton of sense and reads like stereo instructions. There is um, bureaucracy, there's waiting rooms, and if you go out the wrong way, you're going to be working that service desk. Mm-hmm. There's the working of the service desk, and what else is there? There's the corridor with all these doors, and they come upon a door of like disembodied souls. And these are souls of spirits who have been exercised, and that's kind of foreshadowing their fate later when Otho is trying to do a seance and accidentally exercises them. Well, and I think it's interesting that the film kind of does a a fun callback, the uh, woman working the service desk in the waiting room, you know, she talks about her accident. And I'll tell you something, if I knew then what I know now, I would have had my little accident. And then later on in the film, you have Otho allude to that very same point. Yeah. You know what they say about people who commit suicide? In the afterlife, they become civil servants. (laughs) (laughs) So I like that there is this kind of internal sense of logic within the film, even if there are apparently plot holes. But the living do actually have a notion of what it is to be dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's almost – that's the only sense that you get of punishment. There's the sandworm situation where there is a mechanism in place to keep the Maitlands in their home. If they try to get off their property, even if it's just hanging out the window, then all of a sudden they are in a desert planet environment, which according to the Beetlejuice wiki, and yes, there is such a thing, according to the Beetlejuice wiki, when they are out in the sandworm environment, it's one of Saturn's moons. Yeah, great. Whatever. There's also a temporal rift. When they're in that environment. Save my life. Two hours. Oh, Barbara, you are not going to believe what? That's how long you were gone. So basically anything goes in this environment. And I do think that they're plot holes, but I think they also kind of help engender the Maitland's confusion in us as the audience as we're just rolling with it because so are they. They don't know what the fuck's going on. Neither do we. So to talk a little bit about the actual character of Beetlejuice, because even though, as we've talked about, he only occupies about 18 minutes of screen time, you just can't get away from him. I think so much more about Beetlejuice than I do Adam or Barbara Maitland, even though they're really important parts in this film. And as singular as Beetlejuice is, he is part of a really intrinsic tradition uh, for mythology and fairy tales of the trickster. Mm -hmm. 
Now, for anyone who doesn't know, the trickster is usually an alchemist or magician who augments reality, plays tricks, disobeys rules, and current behaviors. Basically just comes in to fuck shit up. And they're generally male in, you know, history or if you kind of anthropomorphize animals as different cultures have and do when it comes to tricksters. They sometimes will be really malicious in their tricks, but it kind of backfires on them and their tricks almost always turn out for the good. Some other kind of more popular pop culture figures that are tricksters could be Bugs Bunny or the Tramp figure as played by Charlie Chaplin. Now, the trickster also runs parallel to the wise fool, kind of something we talked about back in our Cabin in the Woods episode. Someone who sees a lot of things but isn't believed, who can speak truth to power, who can dismantle things that characters around them believe. Yeah, I see that in Beetlejuice a lot. Mm -hmm. In fact, the reason he's able to even get the Maitland's attention is because he knows the handbook for the recently deceased is bullshit. He knows that the whole civil servant bureaucracy is not helpful. And he's like, do you want some help? I got some help. And so what I kind of realized about Beetlejuice, and I imagine maybe there was a little bit of this in the script, and then Michael Keaton just riffing and improvising, and people have talked about how much of this performance was improvised. Mm -hmm. And the things that Beetlejuice parodies are kind of pop culture distractions. Hmm. So you've got ads, you've got carnivals, horror tropes, joking about being a live performer. That is why I won't do two shows a night anymore, babe. I won't. I won't do. So when I was thinking about this, it, it's so much of his stuff really is like it's parodying something else that exists in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so he talks about a bit about the Black Plague and a bit about history, but not a lot. He, he has all his touchstones are really current, mm -hmm. especially for 1988 when the film was made. And I found that through his parodying of those topics, subjects, content, what have you, he actually kind of breaks down all of those distractions that have been aesthetic barriers between the Maitlands and the Dietzes mm. so that they can look at each other and realize that, oh, gosh, we should just care about the people who are right there. We mm -hmm. shouldn't worry about renovations. We shouldn't worry about the model town. It's about the people who are in our lives, whether they're the afterlife or the current life. Yeah. And I thought there was such a nice moment, and I think it could only be really pulled off by an actress like Catherine O'Hara, that when they're all kind of saved, or they think they are briefly, Lydia runs to her parents, and Catherine O'Hara embraces her and looks really scared. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, like, oh, shit, maybe there was something under there that actually really cared about this girl. Right. I mean, there's a certain measure of fear and suspicion. The Maitlands are obviously dead. They're ghosts. That's weird and creepy. The Dietzes are very urban. They're artistic city greedy folks, which is scary and intimidating, but there are worse things. There's Beetlejuice. Yeah. And to me, Beetlejuice represents this kind of weird, he's like a reverse exterminator. He wants to exterminate the living and he eats bugs. He loves bugs. Like he manifests disease and yet his whole bioexorcism thing is I'll clean up your act. I think that's so funny. And I like that once you get through the climax and they say Beetlejuice and the sandworm gets him and that's when you realize that the Dietzes can actually see the Maitlands. And they talk about earlier in the film how the living often ignore the strange and unusual, hence Lydia can see them because she is strange and unusual. 
so it's that nice moment of, you know, they've collectively gone through something. They've mm-hmm. all collectively experienced something that probably no one else, no matter how many theme parks or parking lots they build, will ever believe. I also like how Beetlejuice has kind of a throwback to monsters and tricksters of folklore in the whole device of having to say his name three times, mm-hmm. but he can't tell you his name. It's a cute little throwback to folklore monsters like Rumpelstiltskin and to some shitty extent, stupid Valak from The Conjuring 2. Well, it actually reminded me a lot of The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. Which Beetlejuice, of course, references, but that's the whole thing is, you know, the demon Pazuzu won't say its name, so they have to, like, get the name. Mm-hmm. Now, we mentioned earlier in the episode that Beetlejuice was very close to being a horror movie. The original script, written by Michael McDowell, was way darker, and it featured the Maitlands having a very graphic death scene. Beetlejuice himself is, when he's in human form, he's a Middle Eastern man. And when he's in demonic form, he's like a winged, hideous demon who wants to legit kill the Dietzes and rape Lydia. And in the original script, there was also another Dietz child, a younger child who gets mutilated by Beetlejuice. So in the end, the final Lydia character was like an amalgam of the two kids who's old enough to understand what was going on and not be so young that Beetlejuice's interest in her is totally pervy and disgusting, which it still is. But Warren Scarin injected the script with a lot of its wit and heartwarming comedy. And thank God, because a Middle Eastern man, that would have been a completely different film and not a very okay one. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to talk about it today. But it would be very much a horror movie. There's killing and murder that happens in this story that's treated so passively that you don't think twice about it. Yeah. Like Robert Goulet. Robert Goulet dies in this film. He dies. And they're just shot off of the set. And that's them. That's them. And that happens. But yeah, I would agree with Andrea. This is one of the few times what is seemingly a massive script rewrite really helped. You know, I I think if they'd gone for more of the original aesthetic, we wouldn't be talking about it as the singular film that it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, We wouldn't have these emotional attachments to it. It wouldn't be as prevalent in mine and Andrea's lives as as it is now because, you know, watching – I watched it all the time when I was a kid. But, you know, watching it now, I'm still like, this is great. I still love it. But there's some parts where I'm like, oh, that's a little fucked up. And I kind of remember that scaring me as a kid. Yeah, there are definitely parts that are a little bit alarming. There's something about stop motion, and I get it. I think that it's why filmmakers still use stop motion is because even when it's done really well, it's still a bit surreal. It's still a bit jankety. Like, it never looks... Uncanny Valley. That's right. Like, it never looks quite as clean as CGI, but in a good way, Mm -hmm. in an endearing way. It feels tactile because it is. That's right. And so there's a lot of that going on. It's really bizarro invent. Like, how did he even come up with the way they distort their faces like that? It's, you know, I I think he hires, or certainly used to hire good people. Last night I had some time to kill and I'd kind of put together a lot of my notes on this film and I was flicking around on Netflix and I was like, oh, I should put on something else, Tim Burton. I haven't watched Tim Burton in a while. And the only other one that came up on Canadian Netflix that wasn't totally repugnant to me was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, and I got medium repugnant to me. 20 minutes, 15 <laughs> minutes in before I was like, this is unwatchable. That's pretty good. It is so much CGI. Yeah. 
It is so much CGI. It feels so weird Mm -hmm. and uncomfortable and not in a good way. No, that film didn't resonate with me at all. And and that's the weird thing that you mentioned a minute ago. You mentioned The Uncanny Valley. I think Tim Burton's early work is really good at skating along that line where this is weird, but it makes me feel good. I like these characters. These are happy characters. I'm not afraid. Whereas... Alice in Wonderland gives me the fucking creeps. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory gives me the fucking creeps. They're sinister. They're weird. They're too artificial. I feel like a lot of the heart has come out of his more recent work. Well, and it's, you know, like when you cast Mark Wahlberg as an Boston astronaut who goes to the Planet of the Apes. Like, what are you doing? I always forget that Planet of the Apes is even Tim Burton. And that's how he and Helena Bonham Carter met. Aww. God damn, do I love her. And he's got this crazy habit of kind of glomming on to these actors that fit his aesthetic. And he works with them again and again and again, sometimes to the point of fuck off. Like Johnny Depp, I'm done. We don't need to see 60-year-old Johnny Depp in another Tim Burton movie. I don't need to see Johnny Depp ever again. No, I'm good. But when it comes to Michael Keaton, they had a great working relationship. He went on to do Batman. And then when Tim Burton wasn't going to direct any more of the Batman movies, Michael Keaton's like, okay, you know what? I'm done too. Yeah. And it was a good move. It was a great move. And yeah, so that's kind of the stuff I was talking about earlier in this episode where he had too many tools at his disposal. Mm -hmm. He had too much CGI. He had had too much this, that, and the other. Too much money. And, you know, so he had to play within, you know, certain constraints and deliver things and, you know, create a cohesive story that's at least (laughs) semi-cohesive. It's cohesive-ish. I actually wondered at one point if we would ever tackle a Tim Burton movie in our show just because it's not exactly horror. It straddles the line and I actually thought that... Sweeney Todd might be the closest we've come if I, I could ever I talk can't. you into doing a no. horror musicals episode. No. I would rather do Sleepy Hollow. Than a musicals episode? Or just if we're going to talk more about Tim Burton. Please ah, musicals. really? Yeah. Sleepy Hollow sucks. Yeah, what a I haven't snooze. watched it in years. No, I hate musicals, guys. She really does. And it's too bad because there's amazing horror musicals I out there. I know there are. I just can't. Have you seen Phantom of the Paradise? No, but I've seen Phantom of them all. So let's talk about the word Beetlejuice. What a fun, delightful mixture of two words that have nothing to do with one another. It's so delightful for kids. It's so fun to say. But you'll notice, and this happens throughout the film as it happens on his advertisements, Beetlejuice is spelled very differently. On his tombstone, it's spelled differently. In some of the promotional materials, it's really inconsistent. And the reason for that is Beetlejuice, as B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E, is a star. Did you just misspell it? I think you said one E instead of two E's. B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E. You're saying B-E-T-L-E. B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E. But you're saying B-E-T, but isn't it B-E-E-T? The actual thing is, but the star... The star is different. Can you let me make my point? No. I'm going to make my point, and then maybe it'll make sense. That alternate spelling of Beetlejuice, B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E, is actually a star, and it's a star that appears in horror literature, such as August Derleth's short story, The Dweller in the Darkness, which is set in H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, where Beetlejuice is the home of the benign elder gods. So I have a feeling that they were just kind of like, here's a really crazy word that 
is really fun to say, is hilarious. It has a visual alliteration that comes into play in the film when they're playing charades. And so as far as I understand it, that was the title of the film until people were like, this is literally unpronounceable. And so they changed it to Beetlejuice, but they changed it later so it still appears throughout the film with that spelling. I also feel like the Beetlejuice being a constellation might also be related to the whole Saturn moon thing. Like initially when you look at sandworms on a desert planet, I think of Arrakis. I think of Dune right away. Me too. You haven't seen Dune, have you? I haven't seen Dune. Shit. I know. I wish we could do an episode on Dune. Well, we'll have to start a sci-fi podcast. It's David Lynch. Genre. No. I like that the incorporation of, you know, the star and the sandworms, maybe on another like moon planet thing, it takes it away from a kind of Christian or other religious interpretation of the afterlife. Mm. And it's really practical. It's it's not, not practical. It's not, <laughs> it's not practical to step outside your house confronted with sandworms on another moon. But there is a nice kind of democracy to it mm-hmm. in a certain way. It uh, serves a function. Yeah. It's and, and I noticed for the first time on this viewing that they say you have to stay in this house for 125 years. Why? Bureaucracy. Does everybody? As someone who kind of has a government job, yeah, there's a lot of really random rules. You know what? Another weird thing that I picked up on was, you know, the real estate agent lady? Yes. She comes in early on and she visits them at 6.45 a.m. and they're wide awake and dressed and getting on with their staycation at 6.45 a.m. And when she shows up later and she gives her business card to the Dietzes, she says that they're family. What happened to the people who used to live here? They drowned. Yes, they were family. I was devastated. I was like, what is that? What did I miss? I always hung on to the fact that she decorated it herself. Oh, yes. So call me if you need some help in that regard. (laughs) I love what they did to the house. Can I just say? The renos? Yup. Well, it's it's interesting because they uh, it's it's like the Maitlands go to the afterlife, or they go kind of through this door, and they finally kind of get a bigger sense of what is going on. And when they return to the house, it's X amount of months later, and then it's been turned into a much more creepy horror aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And it's like they had nothing to do with it if they'd just been left alone, or if they people had bought the house who'd been just like them, they would still live in this nice, bright, happy house. Mm-hmm. But with the Dietzes, they kind of had this aesthetic. Thr- rest upon them. Mm-hmm. So it makes their own characters stand out more. And the fact that they missed the Reno, they didn't witness it going down because they were stuck in that limbo that is that waiting room for Juno. And even when they try to like actually scare them, like fuck up their faces, when the Maitlands like pull all that stuff on their faces and uh-huh. augment them, they drop that so quickly. And it's like the one thing Juno says that they did right. Right. Like that looks good. Yeah, go for it. And they drop it immediately because it's not them. Well, it scared Lydia. And they were like, this isn't us. Yeah. We're nice people. Now let's talk about Juno. Yeah. How does such a nice old lady get her throat slit? So many nice old ladies whose throats I want to slip. When I was a little kid and I saw that, I because Tim Burton illustrates the slit throat with her taking a drag of her cigarette and the smoke coming out, I was like, oh, that's what happens if you smoke. That's literally what I thought until about... 15 seconds ago. Come on. I did not read that as a throat That wasn't a tracheotomy. That was like ear to ear. Great. Thank you for traumatizing me. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, she got up to some shit, and she makes a racial slur against Italians at some point, so maybe she got mixed up with the mob? Maybe. So many questions. Did your family whack her? (laughs) But no, it's, it's, I like that the afterlife in this film has its 
old people, it's young people, it's it's different ethnicities, it's some weird racial stuff going on, like with the voodoo doctor and all of this kind of stuff and the way that you die is the way you are in the afterlife. And I think that there's this kind of rainbow that happens and it, the aesthetic that Tim Burton has and, and the designers and the production designers that they put together to make this film, you know, they take these things that are very doom oriented when you're a child, like death is scary because mm-hmm. you don't want to lose the people you love. Ghosts are scary. Ghosts are scary. The unknown is scary, but you know, a lot of Tim Burton stuff is, you know, the monsters that we fear are, are more human than we are. That's right. And even the subject of death, even people who are dead and who are in limbo, nobody's afraid. Everybody's very upbeat. Everybody's kind of very accepting of their plight. Yeah. Like, think of that super flat guy. How do I look? There are no mirrors on this side. Fine. Look fine. Yeah? Fine. Thanks. I've been feeling a little flat. (laughs) He's chilling. Well, and I think that's why those kind of elements, those iterations of death, those uh, little threads that kind of begin within this film branched out into an animated series that I really loved when I was a kid. I remember watching it all the time. And I actually tried to watch it again and prep for this episode. And I think I was, I was telling Andrea, I, I couldn't get through more than like 10 minutes. I just found them to be so manic. It was it was like really off-putting to watch. But as a kid, I loved it. It was weird. There was monsters. Lydia was super cool. She had that like spiderweb poncho. And I was never goth. I was never goth. I just never thought I was cool enough. But I was just like, yeah, if I like got my shit together, I'd wear that. I was goth. And not only was I goth, but I went to a high school that had a dress code. And I know we talked about it when we talked about the craft, but... Another thing I loved about that animated series was she went to Miss Shannon's school for little girls where she had to wear her kilt and she had to be prim and proper and kind of go through these motions. I loved that animated series, too. I did watch a couple of episodes. There was a couple of episodes as special features on the disc that I had. And my favorite episode of all time, Shop Till You Freak at the Spooky Boutique. Oh, I did not watch that. You don't remember that one? <laughs> I don't I don't remember it off the top of my head, but I will have to go revisit this. Basically, Lydia opens up like a spooky goth shop and nobody's shopping in it, so Beetlejuice feels bad for her. By the way, if you haven't seen the animated series, Beetlejuice and Lydia are friends. Their friendship is the nexus of the show and she goes back and forth into the afterlife and there's some supporting characters and interesting monsters the Dietzes are there the Maitlands are absent but it centers around their friendship anyway so to help out her business Beetlejuice like hypnotizes everyone to send them to her spooky boutique and they're all like hypnotized and they chant that mantra shop till you freak at the spooky boutique shop till you freak at the spooky boutique and now i think we have to talk about the sequel which as of this week they were still threatening to make as of this week yeah you saw something this week yeah because winona Ryder mentioned it while she was doing a uh, press for stranger things season two So people were asking her about it, and she was like, yeah, I heard Tim is on board, meaning Tim Burton. And yeah, there are contracts in place. Right after the film, uh, the film premiered in 1988, it did really well. And so there was talk of a sequel almost immediately. Right away, yeah. Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. Let that sink in. Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. The cringe heard around the world. So painful to think about. But then 
you know, everyone apparently was kind of on board with it. And it all fell apart because Tim Burton became more invested in his Batman reboot, which, of course, featured Michael Keaton as Batman. So that fell to the wayside. And now that Tim Burton's career is kind of like with his recent films, frankly, kind of limping along. Mm. Like there's not a lot of faith in him anymore as a filmmaker, I feel, in the industry. Like he, I cannot conjure the last truly great beloved film he did outside of the 90s. No, no, not outside of the 90s, but I feel like fandom of Nightmare Before Christmas has achieved a status that is just, it's beyond the film itself. It's all about the aesthetic. If you go into Hot Topic, holy shit. And so I think there's still some love for him. So he probably still has some kind of clout. But, you know, in the last few years, Michael Keaton has had a real renaissance since Birdman, Mm -hmm. which made me very happy. Winona Ryder, again, doing the Stranger Things seasons. So they get asked about it and they're all like, yeah, yeah, we're doing it. This is great. We're super excited. And it's one of those films, if it does happen and they keep saying it's about to happen, if it ever did get made, I would probably see it. I have to assume that they've abandoned the Hawaiian concept now. They haven't said that they have, so that that makes me worried. But From I what I understand, so. this whole Hawaiian concept was years later. I mean, obviously, initially, they were going to do it right away. But when they were talking about it again in 2010 and again in 2012, it was years later. And the Dietzes successfully built some condos mm-hmm. in Hawaii and... Somewhere in the storyline, I heard, like, of course, this is all just hearsay, but Lydia conjures something. So she's kind of a witch. And so the original players are still in it. But at this point, we're talking about Jeffrey Jones, who is not working, will not work, will not be back to reprise this role. I really don't think. Winona Ryder, who is... God bless her, getting on. I think they would have to really tweak that formula or come up with something else if they wanted to use the old players. Yeah, and, and I don't know if there's much story left to tell because the story is not about Beetlejuice necessarily. It's about two families trying to come together for the sake of a child. Well, that's right. I almost feel like it might work if they kind of took on a new situation and a new pair of families, but that's not what's amazing about the original Beetlejuice. It's in the characters. And I think that's why when we hear that Michael Keaton signed on, Tim Burton signed on, Winona Ryder signed on, we get really excited because we feel like it's going to take us back there, but it won't because it can't. And and that's why we still have the original film. Yeah, just watch that. Watch that. It's so great. It's so fun. And fuck, I'm really glad we got to talk about it today. Me too. Well, we brought the juice. That's what shook loose for another episode from us. And so as we are descending into the colder, crueler months, we decided to get colder and crueler, but also nicer and more in love. For our December episode, we are going to be talking about Let the Right One In. I'm excited. I'm excited. What a lovely, heartwarming, chilling, creepy, unique, Swedish film. 
I love it. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited to hear what Andrea has to say about it. I'm excited it. to watch it again, darn yeah. it. It's been a while. It's been a while for me, too. So that's what's coming up in December. And so one little announcement from us, what we are starting to do, we're actually going to start doing this the night of this recording, but we'll do them in future if it goes well, is some Instagram lives. Andrea does them on her channel. They're super fun. And we thought this could be a good way for you guys to interact with us and ask us questions or give us comments and we can kind of feed back in real time. So if you don't follow us on Instagram already, I'm at scare underscore Alex. And I'm at necromandria. So be sure you're following us. Be sure you're following us on social media so that you know when these things are happening so that you stay informed when new episodes are coming out. And as always, don't forget to drop us a rating on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. If you're not enjoying the show, that's cool. Don't rate us on iTunes. So right now, Andrea, we have to go jump in the line. And until next time, office hours are closed. Sonora, I tell you friends I adore her And when she dances, oh brother She's a hurricane in all kinds of weather Jump in the line, rock your body on time Okay, I believe you jump in the line Rock your body on time Okay, I believe you jump in the line Rock your body on time Okay, I believe you jump in the line Rock your body on time Shake, 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 Sonora Shake your body line Shake, 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 Sonora Shake it all the time Work, 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 Sonora Work your body line Work, 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 Sonora Work it all the time You can talk about cha-cha Tango waltz or the rumba Sonora's dance has no title You jump in the saddle, hold on to the bridle Jump in the line, rock your body at time Okay, I believe you jump in the line Rock your body, rock your body child Jump in the line, rock your body in time Somebody help me Jump in the line, rock your body in time Whoop. Shake, 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 Sonora Shake your body line Shake, 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 Sonora Shake it all the time Work, 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 Sonora Work your body line yes. Work, 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 Sonora Work it all the time Sonora, she's a sensation The reason for aviation And fellas, you got to watch it When she wind up, she bottom, she go like a rocket Jump in the line, rock your body in time Okay, I believe you Jump in the line Rock your body in time Ice those skirts a little higher Jump in the line Rock your body in time Up the chimney Jump in the line Rock your body in time Work it all the time. Dance, 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 Sonora. 
Sinora dances Calypso Left to right is the tempo And when she gets the sensation She go up in the air, come down in slow motion Jump in the line, rock your body in time Okay, I believe you Jump in the line, rock your body in time Somebody help me Jump in the line, rock your body in time Okay, I believe you Jump in the line, rock your body in time Shake, 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 Sinora Shake your body line Shake, 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 Sinora Shake it all the time 